Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Pat. Um, so we have finished up our study of the book of Galatians last week. We're going to be, as I often do, spending some time on maybe some topics, different topics for a little while. And, and as I was contemplating where to go this week, uh, I just seems like I look around at the world around us and similar to how Jesus prayed for us, we are still in the world, even though we're not of it. And we see things in the world around us that I think if, we'd have, if you'd have told us even 10 years ago, some of the things and we would hear and, and things that we would see going on, we would be hard-pressed hard to believe it. We'd be saying, no, people really won't say that, will they? Um, you know, even stronger, you know, is than, than we've seen before. People say things that just don't match up with what God's Word tells us is absolutely true. Uh, we're told that, no, God didn't make the world in, in seven days, six days, actually, and rest on the seventh. No, it came about through, through you know, millions of years of, of time and, and accident and happenings, and, and, and yet God's very clear. He claims that he made the earth. It was by his design and for his purposes and for his glory. Uh, not long ago, we wouldn't have believed that people would say, your gender is what you choose, what you want it to be. You know, we just said, no, God made man male and female, made them in his image with a design, with a purpose. He designed the family, brought a man and a woman together in marriage in order to raise up children and to honor his name. And now we're told, no, that's all just a, whatever it is you want it to be. And, and however it is, you want to reshape your body and your life and your practices. We're told that sexuality can be whatever you want with whoever you want, whenever you want. That's the message in our media and in our entertainment. Um, we're, we're told that things that are very clearly spelled out in Scripture are just choices. Or uh, if someone carries it, you know, too far for, you know, society and the people around them. We're told it's an addiction, that it's a disease. Uh, we're told that violence is, is as a regular uh, way to consume for your entertainment is okay. We're, we're much like the Romans were with their coliseums and, and different places where they, they, they enjoyed seeing people killed and dismembered and torn apart. Uh, our world is... is pushing at us with things that clearly the Scripture tells us are wrong. And it's telling us that we need to dive in and say all of those things are okay. And if not, then we should be excluded from society, that we should be excluded from participation in making decisions. We should be excluded from public life. So... I just want to go back to Scripture and, and say, well, what does the Bible, how, how does the Bible say we should view those things? How should we process them? What should we do in light of living in a society like that? And, of course, we won't cover all of the possibilities. Uh, when we went through and made notes, it's like, okay, well, I'm going to have to thin out a lot of these Scriptures. And you can see there's quite a few in your outline still. But hopefully, by way of reminder, by way of encouragement to keep on being who you have become in Christ, if you've entrusted yourself to him. 
So what do we do? What causes this kind of, of wrong thinking, this thinking that is contrary to what the Creator says is so? And again, I've got to say that as I, as I go through some of these things, it's when people think things that are contrary to God, it's not any one of these necessarily that brings them to that point. It's usually a mixture and some things I'm not going to be able to take the time to, to, to detail. There are other reasons. But here are some of the really key ones. And I want to start with really the root of believing these things that are, are not true and pressing them into our culture. And we have to start in Romans chapter 1. And I'm going to read verses 18 through 32 and just stop and make a few comments as we go, go along. But we really have to understand that at the beginning, there is a rejection of God himself. Romans 1, 18 through 32, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world is invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. Here's this, this is critical. When we reject God, reject the creator and the evidence for himself and creation. But they became futile in their speculations. So once we set aside the creator and say, no, he didn't make all this. He didn't have a design. We begin to speculate in empty ways. We start coming up with our own theories our own thoughts that lead to emptiness, that lead to trouble, that lead to the wrath of God coming on us. Which then leads, it says in verse 21, and their foolish heart was darkened. We wonder, how can people believe some of the things that are, are insisted upon in our culture? Well, Paul tells us, God tells us through Paul, that having rejected God and begun to speculate in their own minds of ways that they can explain the world, their hearts are darkened, closed off, without light. How, how do you see what's real if there is not light? Verse 22, professing to become or to be wise, they become fools. In other words, I know better than God. As soon as you say, do that, Paul says you become a fool. The Proverbs and the Psalms tell us the fool has said in his heart what? There is no God. That's the beginning. And so when we hear people saying things that are totally contrary to what God says is true, we have to say, oh, how sad. They have decided they're wise and become foolish. Verse 23, and exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures, therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Some of the most terrifying words in the Bible. God gave them over. 
We insist on our own way, our own desires. We insist on that enough, God will say, okay, you can have what you want, but it's going to be awful. Understand, that's what's going on in the hearts of people who are pressing things that are directly contrary to God's truth so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Verse 25, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men, committing indecent acts, and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. A mind that literally is unapproved. It doesn't pass the test. And so when we, we get rid of the Creator, our thought processes aren't going through the mind that God designed for us. It's one that's been corrupted, that's dark. And he goes on to do those things which are not proper. Verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. That's where we see ourselves today, right? People practicing the things that God says are very clearly contrary to him as the creator and as the ruler of the universe. He says, and the people are telling us, no, those should be celebrated. Those should be promoted. Those should be encouraged. So there, there's the, the root of it all, and in a sense, Everything else I've talked about is, is found in that passage. But another way to look at the, at the fact that we can promote things that are blatantly contrary to the God who made us is that we are blind without Christ. Because we stop and say, well, why can't they see how ridiculous what they're saying is? Why can't they see the obvious in front of their face? And the Bible says it's because they are blind. They really don't see what is real anymore. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 23 as, as Jesus was rebuking some of the prominent religious leaders of his day uh, who were going against him and the message that he brought. Matthew 23, verses 16 through 26. <clears throat> he says, starts off with this word, woe. Whoa, oh, in other words, oh, this is bad for you. Woe, you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing. Whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men. Which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, 
Which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by both, both the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup of the, and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. And this blindness he's talking about here seems to be willful because he doesn't pity them. He doesn't say, oh, it's, I'm so sorry that you ended up having to be blind. No, he condemns them. He says, woe to you. Look what should come on you. Judgment should come on you because you've chosen blindness. You've chosen to not see. And in the examples that he gives, there seems to be this pattern of focusing in on the unimportant to the exclusion of the most important. They're focused on the gold instead of the, the, the temple that is dedicated to God that makes the gold even worth having there. Okay? All of the things that they're focused in on the unimportant to the neglect of what is very important, which is most important, minimizing God himself. Blindness comes from putting other things first that should not be first. And in Matthew 15, 14, Jesus says that they are, they're blind guides to the blind. And, and so they're, they're doubly responsible because they take, and they both end up in the pit, right? They both end up in the ditch, falling down and in trouble. And they're, those who are trusted are blind also, because others who are respecting them fall into trouble with them. But the Old Testament speaks of this as well. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. I wish we probably could have just spent our whole morning in, in this uh, section here, Isaiah 5, but we'll just look at verses 20 and 21. This is uh, part of a, a rebuke of the nation of, of Judah. And he says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Isn't that our world today? Everything's upside down and backwards. Who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. Substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those, here's the key. Woe to, to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. When we reverse things, when we say what is evil is good, and what is good is evil, it's because we think we know more than God. We think we are wise, we are clever, and it's truly a, a deadly error that leads those who believe it to death. But even worse, it leads others toward death as well. And those who think and, and teach this way suffer from blindness, 
And it's tragic for them and for those who follow them. They're headed for death. Now, deception is another reason that people believe these things that are just not true that God tells us about. Uh, go back to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, verse 6. And I'm going to back up actually to verse 5 just to, to get the full sentence there. Well, let's back up to verse 4. Always need lots of context, right? Whoever then humbles himself as this child, Jesus was holding a child there, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So start out with humility, right? And whoever re receives such one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. What he's saying is as children are born, they're not innocent, no, they, they, they're born as sinners. However, they're influenced towards what's good and right, or they're influenced to what is wrong. And he says, if you are part of that deception, here's what you really deserve. In fact, he says it's worse than that. He says it would be better for you to have that millstone hung around your neck and be thrown into the sea. That's an even greater punishment than you can think, just how awful and horrible such a punishment would be. And deception is one of the reasons that, that people are headed the wrong direction. Think about a child born in this time. And if they're not brought up in a home where they're taught God's word, where they're not taught about, about the creator, about the designer, and they're led down the path of these things that people are saying are good and right, uh, they're, they're led down a path saying, oh, well, you can be a boy or a girl or whatever you want. Or your sexuality, that's the most important thing, and you pursue that. Or truth, well, there really isn't any truth. It's whatever you think is true. God says, woe to you if you do that. Woe to you if you deceive those who might have believed the truth. 2 Timothy 3.13 describes that. <clears throat> Second Timothy chapter three, verse 13. And really pointing towards things becoming more like they are today, he says, "But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse." And here's how he characterizes them. He says, "Deceiving and being deceived." Isn't that interesting? That the deceivers. They've made choices, right? But they are deceiving others, but they themselves are deceived. Now, that, that deception may have started with self-deception. may have started with a rejection of God's authority and God's power. And so we convince ourselves that what God says isn't true. But it leads to saying, when I hear the things that are not along God's line, I'm, I willingly put myself under that deception. I willingly buy into it. I willingly surround myself with people who tell me the deception to where I, I, I stop, I forget that I 
was willingly deceived, and now I simply believe it as true. And I go about deceiving others, trying to convince others to take in these falsehoods, to go along with what the world is pushing. Of course, it's not just people that are, that are part of this, right? Uh, there is the whole demonic world. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2 uh, tells us about the amazing things that Jesus did by coming and how he had to become like us. He had to become one of us in order to pay for our sin, in order to free us from that deception, free us from what, what it is we deserve. So Hebrews 2 verses 14 and 15, it says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he, speaking of Jesus, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who, through fear of death, were subject to slavery all their lives. So here we really have a combination of intimidation and deception. Many people will go along with lives that are propagated in the society out of the fear of death. It says here that Satan uses the fear of death as his tool to manipulate people and to push them to accepting things that are not correct. Uh, we heard an example from, at the men's breakfast yesterday from, from, from Jim Rollick about you know, a church in Chicago that spoke out about the truth of God's word and the pressure and the attacks that came on them so much, they actually changed their position as a church. Some of their leaders were in fear for their lives. Some of them were in fear of violence against them and their property. Through that, they, they said, oh, well, we don't believe what God said. Here's, here's what we believe. That's just one example, and we all face the fear of death Sometimes it's, it means that some sort of a vague threat of what might cause our death, right? We, we change our, our ways, not because we've discovered that they're different and true, but because we're afraid of where it will take us. It might mean the fear of the circumstances in which we die. But usually the fear is something that's not even real or likely to happen but Satan knows how to use that in our lives and to press us to do things we never thought we would have done, but especially for those who aren't in Christ, who don't have a new heart, who haven't been transformed by him. But it's this fear of death that makes the deception that much easier. So we need to keep that in mind when we hear from people. What, what's the pressure on them? How is the fear of death being applied to people who are, are putting these things out? Satan's alive and well. Another, another thing that, that causes people to say these kind of things, and I'm going to be way too brief on this last one, but it's rebellion, really is at the heart. God says one thing, and we say, no, it's my authority that matters. I will do it what I want. Turn with me to John chapter 12 for a great example. John chapter 12, verses 37 through 40. And again, here is speaking about Jesus again. 
says, but though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes, and he has hardened their hearts, so that they would not see with their eyes, and perceive with their heart, and be converted, and I heal them. More terrifying words, really. Jesus gave them every reason to accept him as Messiah, as Savior, as the Son of God. He demonstrated power like they had never seen. And yet it says there that he, they, even though they'd seen so many signs, they were not believing in him. And then it says then they could not believe. They persisted in their unbelief to the point where judgment was put on them in this life that now they couldn't see. They disbelieved to the point of blindness. They rebelled against the obvious truth in front of them from God. And they ended up at a place where they would not believe, then they could not believe. Now understand, I'm, we, we never know from our perspective, where that might have happened to a person. We should always be giving the truth in the hope that people will believe. But rebellion is a dangerous thing. It can take us down a road where we don't know how to get out. It can take us so far that we never thought we'd have gone to that point. And so as we look at at people in the the world around us, our neighbors and friends and and media people and, and leaders, pushing things that are totally contrary to what God says is true. We need to stop and understand what's going on in their hearts and lives. The impact that is on them. But what should we do? Well, I think we do need to continue to try to understand where they're at. One thing we need to to start with is Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. You probably pretty familiar with this, but here we just precedes uh, the section on the armor of God, but it sets the stage. It says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Although people will act like enemies toward us, Paul says our real enemy is the spiritual forces behind that. Satan and his demons are encouraging this blindness, encouraging this deception, encouraging the rebellion. And our real enemy and the, real, the, the heart of it all is really that we are in a battle, a spiritual battle against them. They are, the, the people who are... are pushing these things in the world are just the pawns of Satan and and his demons in a battle against God. They may be willing participants. Understand, they may be happy to go along. But they can still be redeemed. They can still be transformed if they put their trust in Christ. Confessing their sin and realizing that, that Jesus paid the price for them. 
And that's our goal. Our goal is to see people redeemed, transformed, saved, not to defeat people, but to see them, you could say, win in the only winning that matters. That's our goal. We also need to remember who we were before we came to know Christ. Uh, Go to Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7, please. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. The basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This, this passage is a graphic description of of what we were saved out of by Jesus. You see that list? Once we were, take that list, and it used to be your label. That's what you were like, even if you are in Christ. That's what you were saved out of. So when we look at people who are still like this, we need to remember that we were just like that at our core. And it's only because Jesus justified us by his grace, by a free gift. He did it for us. We didn't, we weren't good enough. It wasn't by our works of righteousness, right? It's because he brought his mercy, his grace, and applied it to us when we believed. Now, some of us were saved before we could get so far down deep into the sinful practices, right? Before we could become so practiced in it that it, it impacted so many other people. But at the core, we were just as bad off as everyone else. And we were headed down that road, and Jesus mercifully saved us from getting further into the consequences of sin, right? So we need to remember, we, have to, we need to humbly understand that when people teach us things or try to push things on us that are so wrong, Understand, the only difference between us and them is Jesus rescued us. Otherwise, but for the grace of God, there go I, right? So what else should we do? Well, we have to speak the truth. Even when the world wants to shout us down, wants to shut us up, wants to keep us from speaking what is true, we need to speak the truth. Um, Ephesians 4.25 in that section that talks about who we used to be, our old man and our new man, says to, to put off telling lies and to speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor. Because now we have become, in Christ, new creations in him. So our new person is characterized as being a truth speaker. It's now our nature in Christ. So put off being someone who tells falsehood. Put on your new nature of speaking the truth, even in the face of pressure, even in the face of being told to to shut up and sit down. Speak the truth. 
If the world is repeating a lie over and over and over so much that people are believing it, we still need to say, no, here's what's true. Here's what God says. We need to keep on speaking the truth, even though it will cause us problems. And it will cause us problems in this world. When we speak about what sin truly is, when we speak about the consequences of sin, which is hell, right? Which is death. When we speak about there being only one way to escape that punishment. Because it will cause us problems. Uh, Jesus, or back in Luke chapter 6, 26 through 28, if you did turn there. Luke 6, uh, 26 uh, through 28. Jesus, here's another woe, right? Oh, so bad for you. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. So Jesus is telling us that you know, the truth isn't going to be well accepted not everybody's going to speak well of you if you speak out the truth. And that's okay. In fact, if everybody is speaking well of you, he says, oh, that is so bad for you. That means you've, you've gone astray from the truth. Because the truth isn't popular in a sinful world. But notice he also takes it even farther by spelling out the kind of attitude we should have towards those who will act like enemies toward us. He says to love our enemies. In other words, you speak the truth, you're going to have enemies. If you have enemies, what do you do with them? Oh, you, you love them. You do what is ultimately best for them. And you should have been here for our discussion at the men's lunch yesterday. We had a nice talk about that. It's not so easy as you think, right? Sometimes speaking the truth means you have to rebuke someone. Go with me to Proverbs 24. Proverbs 24, 24 and 25. It says, He who says to the wicked, You are righteous, peoples will curse him and nations will abhor him. But to those who rebuke the wicked will be delight and a good blessing will come upon him. You see, rebuke is what's needed when someone sins, when someone acts in a wicked way or is characterized by wickedness. They need to be told that what they're doing is wrong for their own good. Approval isn't what they need. We shouldn't go along. We shouldn't say, yes, continue on in your sin. We applaud you. No. No, we have to say, here's what God says. Here's what his character is like. You need to turn or you're headed for great trouble. We have to rebuke those who are in sin because that's what they really need. As Ephesians 4.15 says, we need to speak the truth in love. Now, we shouldn't be proud. We shouldn't be eager to go about finding people to rebuke, right? That's not, not what our character should be. But we should be willing to do that because it's a necessary act, but it's a sorrowful one because of its seriousness. 1 Peter chapter 3, 13-17 puts a lot of this together, if you... Turn there with me as well. 1 Peter 3, 
13 through 17, because if we stand by the truth, we will run into trouble, right? We will run into opposition. So Peter starts off by saying, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? That's what it ought to be, right? If we really want what is good, we shouldn't run into anybody who wants to hurt us. He says, verse 14, though, But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation. And do not be troubled. But sanctify, or set apart, Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. There's a, there's a kind of a, a plan of action, right? And Peter also tells us back in chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, that we need to live consistently with the truth that we speak. So 1 Peter 2 11 through 15 says, But I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Doing what matches up with what you proclaim. Doing what is good. Doing what is right. Should silence those. It doesn't always, does it? But it should silence at least some of those who say bad things about people who follow God. There is slander against those who do what is good and right. People don't like it when they are in sin themselves. It condemns them when they see someone who is following God. But he says, live consistently. It should be clear to anyone who watches you that the false Accusations that may come against you don't match up with the reality of your pattern of life. And finally, we need to be consistent about preaching the word, about proclaiming God's word that he's preserved for us in the Bible. Uh, finally, turn with me to 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. Here, Paul speaking to a young, younger leader says, here's, here's what you need to do right now. Here's the opportunity you have. It says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom. It's hard to make that more, any more serious than what he said there. Before God, the judge of all the world, who's going to come to judge the world, I charge you before him. Do this. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. 
reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober, or thinking clearly, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. He says these words, get them out every opportunity you can that God has given you. Because the time is coming when people won't listen. They'll only hear the things that make them feel good about the way they're living. Sound like today? Now, it's sounded like things down through the centuries since that time, but it seems like even more and more today, doesn't it? We have a limited time in which to clearly teach what God has revealed to us. And we see an increase of people saying, no, just teach us what we want to hear. Flip on your television, go on the internet, you'll find all kinds of people who will tell people what they want to hear. You'll find people who will say, oh God, he's just there to, to give you your best life now. He's just here to give you what you want. He's just here to make your life easy. He's just here to take away anything hard. No, there's a lot more. God has much better for you than that. So make this personal. These things have to come up against our natural sinful tendencies in a strong way or we won't take it seriously and the people we talk to won't take it seriously. That's why he uses words in there like rebuke. Because that means to, to take God's word and put it up against the sin that we see. We have to do that in order to be faithful. There's a lot there, a lot we haven't touched on related to this. But Proverbs does tell us that there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end of that is death. And if we care about people, if we love them, we won't let them just keep on heading into death. There is a way of life and a way of death. God's the only one who truly knows the way of life, so we have to get into his word, teach what it says, so people can have real life. Not just pleasures for a while, but really real life that lasts into eternity. We must humble ourselves to his authority and truth and urge others to do the same. Because we live in a world full of pressures to go our own way, follow our own lusts and desires. We have to keep our eyes in that context on Jesus. Or the temptation even for believers will be to drift into that kind of sinfulness, into that same kind of self-gratification. So let me finish, and we'll just quit, by reading the closing, closing words of the letter that Jude, the, the half-brother of, of Jesus, wrote right before the book of Revelation. Jude 22, 25. There's only one chapter, so no chapter number, just verses 22 through 25. It says, And have mercy on some who are doubting. 
save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Father, that is our prayer, that uh, you'd be pleased to use us your glory and for what is truly good to, to be your spokespeople and, and, and those who live by example uh, the great truth that your word gives. Give us the courage to, to speak the truth when the lies are being shouted. Uh, give us the truth in our hearts in a way that responds graciously and, and mercifully and kindly to others, that loves enemies and and your spirit guiding us so that we know what that love is going to look like, uh, what is ultimately best for someone. It's hard, hard to figure that out sometimes, and we need your help. Lord, help us to bind together, be bound together in that, so that uh, we will be seen as those who have fixed our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Not about ourselves, not being... Uh, proud or arrogant, but people who humbly follow the risen Savior. We ask this in Jesus' name.